You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. Welcome to the Turkic and Central Eurasian Studies Seminar. My name is Talant Malkanuli. I'm a faculty member in the Turkic and Central Eurasian Studies program in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilization here at the University of Washington. This is our last Turkic Central Eurasian Studies Seminar lecture for this academic year. So it's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker, Professor Bob Bedisky. Professor Bediski is an adjunct and emeritus professor of political science at the University of Victoria. He's also an affiliate professor at the Jackson School of International Study here at the University of Washington. Professor Bediski is an author and a co-editor of many books and articles. And uh, I'll just give you some uh, example, exemplifying his, some of the publication related to his topic today. So. Uh, reinventing human human security lessons from Chinggis Khan's biography. It's a paper, Stockholm paper, in nine, 2013. And also, he also co-edited Eurasia's ascent in energy and geopolitics: rivalry or partnership for China, Russia, and Central Asia, 2012. <laughs> The transformation of South Korea reform and the reconstruction of the Sixth Republic under Ro Taiwu, published in 1994. And so, Mongolia Future Scenario for Landlocked States, uh, 2008. Today, he will talk about his paper entitled Roots of the Mongolian State, Chinggis Khan's Survival, and the Pragmatism as Related in the Secret History of Mongols. The paper will be published in Ulaanbaatar late this year. I also to mention that this event is sponsored by the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations with the support from Elson Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the Jackson School of International Studies at the Washington University. I also would like to thank Darren Bailey a PhD student in the anthropology department is helping organizing this event. So without further ado, please join me. Welcome Professor Bob Bediski. Well, thank you for that kind introduction and the opportunity to present this um, paper today. The, um, let me get right into it. Genghis Khan has the reputation as a man of death and destruction. And yet he set in motion a chain of events which transformed much of Eurasia into a world state. He ushered in a revolution which ranks with modern globalization today. This liquidation of ancient and early medieval world is described by Jack Weatherford and others. His career was a historical big bang whose force and effects are still rippling through the present day. The moment of that explosion began on the steps of Mongolia where one man forged warring clans and tribes into one of the greatest fighting forces in history. My interest in Mongolia began in the early 1990s when I was invited to meet with top political leaders 
<clears throat> and discuss democratic development and problems of national security. My previous work on democracy in Northeast Asia, state formation, and national security stimulated curiosity about how this former Soviet satellite <clears throat> would solve some fundamental political questions. In the course of several visits and a Swedish invitation to write and lecture on contemporary Mongolia, my attention turned to the medieval state. In reading about Genghis Khan and studying the secret history of the Mongols, I discovered the convergence of several clusters of ideas waiting to be explored. The first was about state formation. How did the Mongol state emerge out of violent tribal wars and politics? Was there a Hobbesian social contract where men consciously agreed not to fight each other and to create a sovereign to rule over them? The second cluster concerned the concept of security, a word with promiscuous modern usage. By confining it to precisely one meaning, a pattern of survival became clear in the secret history. That meaning applied to individual human life is simply prolonging life, postponing death, or PLPD. From the second cluster, a third emerged as the perennial question of human existence. How is it possible to stay alive in this hostile world and cold cosmos? And yet humanity has prevailed. Answering the question of how our species has survived must begin at the individual level. In um, this graph, this, this um, really accosted me and uh, begged the question of how has humanity been successful in, in surviving? If we look at um, the, the, the growth of human populations, uh, it's rather there's a slow progress to about 1,000 AD, uh, and then it begins to pick up. And then we, we see this, this acceleration of human existence. Uh, for this chart, my unit is one life um, for one year. That is, one human life year is the unit of this. And we see more people living longer. That's the. So how do, how do uh, grapple with this question? We accept it. We say, well, it's medicine, technology, good living, um, iPhones, and all the rest of it has contributed to our, our persistence. The answer, I think, has to be looked at more closely. This, it's something like fractals. If you ever uh, look at the, the mathematical concept of fractals, where you're looking at something that seems very simple, and then you look more closely, and it, you want more detail. You go closer and closer. And so the, the basic unit in this graph is a kind of fractal human individual. To provide a framework for approaching these questions, I expanded some ideas from philosophical anthropology. I identified four levels of existence or strata of being, starting from the autonomous individual human to the citizen in civil society. <clears throat> we find that the first uh, three strata in the history, that is the history of the Mongols, and the beginning of the fourth. Further, one finds that each stratum is energized by a different type of human will. I will illustrate this with events and incidents from the life of, of Genghis Khan. My approach is to assume that history is created by living men exercising inborn will, responding to external challenges. This will is expressed in knowledge and action. Mongols who lived at the edge of physical survival understood this and followed Genghis Khan, recognizing that his enterprise of war and conquest was more conducive to their life security than was traditional tribal and nomadic existence. 
A primary lesson we can derive from the secret history is that security of human life is enhanced by will, knowledge, and action, and that the primary motivation <coughs> and orientation of all living things is simply to remain alive. Man has refined and improved his, his life chances more than any other biological species. He has modified his behavior, constructed social and political institutions, and transformed nature from adversary into life sustainer. A humanist understanding of Genghis Khan requires an approach which is faithful to historical description, considers psychological parsing, and transcends materialist explanation. Two themes that dominate the secret history are how did Genghis Khan survive in the frequently life-threatening environment of nomadic steppes? And secondly, how did the Mongol state emerge out of, this un out of these unpromising conditions of tribal and impoverished warrior society? In a way, uh, th this is a very contemporary question as well. In the developing world, um, do states matter? Yes, they do. And we'll see that um, human, human life security is improved by formation of, of nation states. Both, both of these questions were approached pro pragmatically and empirically in the secret history. Empiricism as knowing and pragmatism as acting form the X and Y axes uh, of the, the history of the Mongols. Let me, uh, these, these concepts are, are underlying much of what I'll say later, so let me uh, say a few words about knowledge and action. By plotting knowledge and action in response to life-ending threats, we gain an appreciation of Genghis Khan's survival dilemma, and by extension, humanities. Um, in, the first, in, the, in this first quadrant, uh, there's no knowledge, no action. In the second one, there's knowledge but no action. In the third one, there is no knowledge but there is action. And in the fourth one, which is the, the most um, amenable to survival, is having knowledge and action. We can illustrate this by a, um, a hypothetical event. A man is sleeping in a, in a, in a, in a cave, and um, a tiger comes in. The man is sleeping. He has no knowledge. He takes no action. And, and of course, he's completely vulnerable. In the second scenario, the man in the cave um, is paralyzed by, by fear. He recognizes that there's a tiger in the cave, but he's paralyzed. No, he has knowledge, but no action. In the third one, in this third parable, uh, parable um, he flails about it. It's dark in the cave, and he strikes with, the, with whatever he has. He picks up a club. He doesn't know what is attacking him. So he has action, but no knowledge. In the third one, or in the, uh, the fourth um, quadrant, he sees the tiger. He knows its weak points, has weapons, and fights with skill and ferocity. His survival probability is greatest when action is informed by knowledge. And this is, the, this is really the, the underlying message of the secret history, that knowledge and action combined will produce the best results and survival. Empiricism and pragmatism as knowledge and action permeate the secret history, narrating a central message of state formation around the survival of Temujin and his acquisition of power to protect himself, his family, his warriors, and their families and clans. The question of his longevity can be reduced to the notion of security, a term generally applied to states and nations, but one which traditionally referred to individuals. Since life is the fundamental property of an individual, and life is not possible 
without, <clears throat> without constant infusion of, input, of fluids, nutrition, shelter, and protection from predators, security can be defined as the sum of actions and knowledge which sustain life. Individual human units comprise the molecules of society and state. They consume security actions in order to prolong life and help to postpone death. So security actions, uh, not only knowledge, are, are crucial to understanding this survival. Life security can be precisely measured as the longevity or life length of an individual who's consumer and producer of security actions. We're all consumers of security actions. We are all uh, producers and consumers. For every person who has lived, is living, and will live, life length is roughly proportional to the degree of security absent or present. All humans are born, live, and die attached to an animal state of nature in that longevity of mortal bodies is subordinate to metabolism and physiology. The mortal soul resides in the physical body and is dependent upon its survival and health. Getting down to the, the case study of Chinggis Khan, um, what I did here is to plot uh, what I estimate to be his, his uh, life risk or life chances. And so we have uh, degrees of, of 10 percentiles. And um, the higher the percentage, the greater, that, the, greater the risk he, he faced. And what I tried to illustrate in this, in this graph is that there were times when uh, life was normal, but still there were, there were risks involved. There were, time, there were other times, though, when risk was much higher. Um, so uh, at, a, uh, at an adolescent age, he and his family were exiled from the clan, and they were left to their own devices, expected to starve to death or be eaten alive by various predators. So this very high life risk. And then he, he gained support from Togrul, or Wang, uh, the Wang'an, uh, the leader of the, the, um, of the Karyat, uh tribe. And that, of course, increased his security and uh, increased his life chances. However, there were battles, uh, miscellaneous battles. Um, and then in 1206, he was declared the, 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 grand con, the great Khan of all the Mongols. And of course, that gave him additional uh, uh, life security. And at the time of death, of course, zero security. He, he passed away um, roughly in, uh, in, in 1227. A lot of these, uh, this, is, this is very, very approximate, uh, somewhat subjective, of course, but, but just to give, give a sense that um, his life was very precarious. In the course of evolution, humans were attached primarily to their nuclear families, and these formed the basis of clans and tribes, or life communities, as, uh, as families writ large. From these, men constructed states to enhance life security. The concentration of power and control was summarized in the concept of sovereignty, a supremacy that mimics the paterfamilias in the family and the supreme being in religion. Uh, here again, getting back to the case study of, of Chinggis Khan, uh, starting from his birth at zero age and to his death at this age. Uh, if we cut across any of these, a cross-section horizontally, you get a, uh, a rough proportion of the security resources available to him to keep him, al him alive. Uh, for most of his, his youth, of course, there was his mother and his father. His father's life was terminated 
by being poisoned by a, a band of uh, totters. Um, and of course, uh, the mother had to take over some of the duties of um, parenting, but not all. So the loss of the father was a, was a great um, decrease in this, the life security available to him. At the same time, uh, his, his, his personal uh, security resources were increasing, which is indicated by this, this um, triangle that gets larger the older he gets. Uh, there's a kind of organic society or life community, which would be the tribes and the clans. Uh, that would vary quite a bit more than, than I have shown here. And then in, in 1206, formation of the Mongol state, and the, the, the more people are attracted, the more warriors are attracted to his army, the, the, the greater uh, his security is, and I'll, I'll illustrate that uh, with uh, an incident later. But um, after the formation of the state, his security is, of course, much greater, and those who join him. The point is that um, people, individuals, are, are much more secure in their life expectancy when there is a state rather than in a state of nature or merely in tribal and clan society. Thomas Hobbes described the sovereign ruler as the keeper and guardian of the social contract wherein men partially surrendered their right of self-defense in exchange for collective protection by the state. A powerful metaphor, but Hobbes minimized the intermediate pre-state -life, uh, pre life community, a vital stage for evolution of all states and the Mongol Empire in particular. Hobbes was writing from his experience of British and Western Europe where state and civil society enjoyed a relatively high degree of partnership and had evolved from Roman times. The Mongol state, in contrast, was based on a sovereignty imposed by force and violence, yet supported by component life communities. <clears throat> by life community, um, the, the literature on, on, on uh, philosophical anthropology uh, refers to the pre-state situation of, of mankind. And what I've done here is to uh, illustrate that life community consists of, of families, um, mothers and fathers, children, siblings, and so forth, who are bonded uh, in, a kind, in an informal way to form a life community. That is, they are mutually self-sustaining in most cases. There is a mutual loyalty. There, there is cooperation. There is coordination. There is a high degree of, of solidarity. So that was um, before the, the uh, existence of the, uh, the Mongol state. And after the formation of the state, it's, it became like a, um, a magnet where all the uh, molecules are lined up and they can, they can form a single uh, force. Uh, the, the formation of the Mongol nation state was similar, that the clans are aligned in a certain direction for mutual support and so forth. There's also a very uh, hard boundary um, around the, the, uh, the nation state that, is formed, that was formed in 1206. That is, uh, the, the, uh, the subjects of Genghis Khan were defined as those who lived in the felt houses, in, in the ger, or, or the, the yurts, as, as uh, they're called in Western literature. And of course, at the head of this, uh, uh, this organization was the Khan and his, his family. So the Mongol state consisted of strong families, but weaker clans and, and tribes. Uh, some, of, some of the privileges, rights, and powers of the clans 
had been removed and um, uh, allotted to, to uh, the sovereign ruler. Where is this all going? Well, uh, one direction it's going is our understanding of the modern state. And here we have the modern totalitarian state, which has some similarities with the 1206 uh, Mongol state, a uh, very hard state boundary as in North Korea today, for example. Uh, China until the, the reforms in the late 70s and early 80s, a supreme leader. Um, and, and of course, in totalitarian systems of the 20th and 21st century, we have the party apparatus, which, which is an overlay and um, exercises state powers. So this is, this is where I'm going with, with a lot of this stuff. It's not, nearly, it's not only to, to um, look at the biography of, of Genghis Khan. The, um, the later empire's bicontinental extent, as well as multi-faith and multi-ethnic populations, precluded an integrated civil society and required a powerful state apparatus to maintain order. An unsustainable single sovereignty was replaced by multiple khanates ruling through Chinggisid claims and ending in inevitable fragmentation. Uh, a side note about the, 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 the history itself. Um, it has um, much of it much of the original text was lost, uh, rediscovered in the 20th century in pieces. Parts are still missing. There's a, a chapter, for example, on uh, Mongol women that somehow has been censored out. Uh, Jack Weatherford has put together uh, what he can, and um, his book on, on Mongol queens is, is, is a fascinating study. The, um, here's, one, here's a Chinese version from which uh, earlier translations were taken. And um, what's, uh, you can imagine the difficulty of translating this into English or German. Here we have um, ch the, uh, the Chinese characters written, in, um, written to, to form the phonetic sounds of medieval Mongol language. And um, there's a lot of guesswork, but a lot of good philological uh, support behind all this. Uh, Chengji Sahan uh, is about as close as you can get in Chinese to to um, to the uh, the original uh, to the Chinggis Khan pronunciation in Mongolian. There's another one here, uh, Chilidu, if I can find it. Um, but there's there's other names that had to be guessed at because the, the Chinese meaning the Chinese characters give no sense of of um, the actual uh, wording or the actual pronunciation of, of these words. There's a kind of cult of Genghis Khan today in, in Mongolia. I, uh, a few years ago, I visited this um, uh, Mongolian secret history tourist camp, and they have huge gear containing replicas of the secret history, some um, reputed um, original fragments of, of the book, and so forth. You have to remember that this, the secret history was secret. It was written for the royal family for consultation. I see, the more I read it, the more I, I look into it, but the more I see it as a kind of survival handbook for the, the Mongol royalty, as well as a kind of constitution for the, the, uh, the Mongol nation. That is, in the sense that it describes the origins of, uh, of the state, of Genghis Khan, of his family, and the techniques of rule, the techniques of statecraft. But one has to really dig deep to, um, 
uh, to to uh, pull these these ideas out. <coughs> the pictures in, in the Mongolia, Mongolia. This is Mongolia. Oh, the, the, the old script. There's a, it's a big resort there, beautiful oh, lodge. Get the script. Use the old script. Oh, the old script, right, yeah. Oh, okay. the, during the uh, Soviet period, um, the Cyrillic alphabet was used for the Mongolian language. And subsequently, since um, 92, 93, the, uh, the old script has been reintroduced into the education system. Um, and so, so you get the, the, um, the older generation that writes in Cyrillic and the younger generation are, are more fluent in, in, in the, the new one. Excuse me, when was that book published, the original? The original? Um, a year after, well, it wasn't published, but it was, it was compiled a couple of years after the death of, of Chinggis Khan. Which was? 12, uh, he, he, he died August of 1227. Uh, the book has been, the secret history has been dated 1228, 1229. So. So, sorry, so the sure, go ahead. family had access to guy and Mr. Rats. All had access to. Apparently, right. But it was, um, as I said, it was not published. It was not uh, open to the public. It was for their use only, uh, which, which also uh, explains why it has been so hard to find in, in original, uh, original uh, copies. Uh, very impressive statues, stainless steel of Chinggis Khan. Here's uh, the scale. These are, these are people here, cars down here. And it's huge. This is, um, he's looking uh, towards uh, the Chinese uh, territory. Uh, this, uh, in this area, there was a big battle between the, uh, the Manchus and, and uh, the Mongols. And um, one sees a, a, uh, a rebirth of, of Genghis Khan um, cult, if, if you will. He is a religious figure as well. There, there are uh, temples. Um, during the Soviet period, he he was not um, uh, he was not celebrated. He was seen more well. He was seen as as uh, the later Attila the Hun as uh, killer, destroyer, raper, rapist, and so forth. I was um, on my first visit to Mongolia. Uh, as I said, I was speaking with um, national leaders, and I had uh, coffee with um, former prime minister. And at the end of it, I thought, okay, let's, let's take a photograph. And there was a nice picture of Genghis Khan. And I said, how about here? He thought about it. He said, no, and went to, to a, a more religious picture. He was still nervous about having any kind of association with Genghis Khan. There's still a sense, or at that time, this was in the, the early 90s, there was still a sense that um, you know, the Russians might come back, or it's still not proper to. But they've, they've gone full, full blast on this now. You have several brands of Genghis Khan vodka. There's a Genghis Khan Holiday Inn for a while. Um, he's, he's very much um, an icon of contemporary uh, Mongolia. OK, getting back to some more abstract things. Um, I have compiled a, uh, a theory which I call anthropocentric security. And the postulates of, the, of this theory are the following. All human life consists of individual birth, a life of creating and consuming security actions, and an end of the mortal body. Secondly, all, all humans have a mortal soul, consists of the, of the will to life, the will to freedom, and the will to power. Uh, third, each will constructs a stratum of being as follows and establishes human status. The uh, will to life 
um, exists in the state of nature, and it creates the individual human, uh, the will to freedom. Now, I speak of freedom in, in a kind of Marxist sense, that uh, the, freedom from, the freedom from necessity, the freedom, freedom from harsh necessity. If you ever see animals in the wild, they're always looking for food. They, their whole being is determined by how much sustenance, how much nutrition they can get. Um, humans, I, I find, find, look for freedom from this, this necessity by associating, by cooperating with others. And this is where we get the life community. And in this uh, context, the, the concept of person emerges. Have you ever seen the, the, the film with Tom Hanks, Cast Away? It's, it's not one word, it's a very clever title. It's Cast Away. And the whole, um, well, what, what I got out of the, the film was that Hank, uh, Tom Hanks is, is abandoned, or he, uh, there's a crash landing in the, in the water. He alone uh, survives, lives on this island, is able to sustain himself. And he's, he's purely an individual. Uh, along with the flossum and jetsam that comes ashore is a basketball, a Wilson basketball. And so this becomes his friend so that he can retain his personhood. He doesn't want to be merely an animal searching for food and trying to survive. He wants to be a person. And so this Wilson basketball becomes his friend, and he calls him Wilson. He talks to him, and uh, I think he takes him with him when, when he, or he loses him, but it, very close to him. Uh, and then there's a scene in the film where all his friends assume that he has died, and so each, per, each of his friends will, will throw something of his into a grave, uh, essentially burying his personhood. He's, he's no longer a person. He, he no longer has contact with people. So it was a beautiful um, distinction between person and individual in, in that film. And uh, a sidelight. Um, and finally, each of these stratum, uh, each stratum, a stratum of being discovers or creates platforms from which security actions are, are, um, are launched. A little more theory here. This is a summary of the theory. And um, each, as I said, each stratum, each um, stratum of being um, launches uh, or, or has platforms. And I've discovered, or I've outlined 15 platforms from which security actions are launched. Uh, the theory is uh, that uh, before there can be a state, there has to be life community. You cannot just build, you cannot just take an aggregate of, of people and, and build a state. There has to be bonding in the life community. But before there is life community, people have to desire, um, have to have this will to live, which is primary to all other actions. So in the platforms, which exist because of the will to live, the will to freedom, the uh, will to power, these platforms exist because they have been created, constructed by, by humans. This, this is more of a given. That is, we're given our biological existence and we do the best we can to maintain it as long as we can. I further um, formalize these, uh, what I call insights, into the human condition by, um, by constructing these, uh, these formulae. And each one is derived from the conditions of um, the particular stratum of, of being. Um, so the uh, life security of an individual, LS sub N, 
is equal to the sum of the will to power, the will to uh, live, um, um, the environment, knowledge, and and um, I forget what this one is, but it's um, and so I take the sum of these, and they are available in the uh, in the life community. So that plus the uh, the will to power, uh, the social knowledge, obligations. Uh, and, and other things. And then I take the sum here, added here, uh, and there are certain political items, uh, certain political um, uh, security action platforms that further sustain life as uh, we know it. So the, the, the point of all this is that um, there has to be a sequence. There has to be a sequence of, of state creation. The state is not somebody's idea of how to better organize uh, human and human resources. In fact, I even um, have been able to, to quantify some of this. So it, it, uh, there's a kind of uh, convergence of science and humanities in this enterprise. The unit of human protection is the security action uh, itself, consisting of a single act or a set of actions launched within the stratum of being security action platform. And its purpose is protecting or destroying one or more human lives. That is, there are positive security actions and there are negative security actions. One cannot explain the, the life of Genghis Khan without considering his negative security actions. That is, he did away with many people in order to protect himself. And uh, I'll get into one of those. The, uh, the secret history does not address civil society. It was not achieved during the lifetime of Genghis Khan among the Mongols. It can be considered a fourth stratum of being derived from the three preceding it. Now, to illustrate uh, this, um, this, this uh, taxonomy of actions, I have devised a template for analyzing security actions. First of all, what is the stratum of being? Is it the state of nature? Is it life community? Or is it in the state? These, these determine uh, the nature of a security action. And then within, once we've determined the stratum of being, we look at the, uh, the platform, and I've just identified 15 of them. The third thing is um, very interesting. That is to actually state the nature of a security action. Um, the simplest way to summarize it is in a simple subject, predicate, object statement. Fourth, I look at the intended consequence of any security action. Are you helping somebody? Or are you hurting them? Are you, uh, do you want to do away with them? Unintended consequences. This, these happen all the time. We plan to do something, and there are things we hadn't uh, considered as, as outcomes. What kind of resources were required and resources used in order to, to achieve a security outcome? What is the effect on the life length of the object? Uh, the object, of course, is, is always a person. The positive or negative for the subject, the initiator, and the positive or negative for the uh, objective. So let's let's turn to a real case out of the um, out of the uh, secret history and see how this template works. The first incident in which I use this uh, template 
is when Temujin, or later to become Genghis Khan, when he kills his, his half-brother, Bekter. Families can be pressure cookers in which rivalry and conflict erupt, sometimes fatally. The family can nurture intense emotions and is capable of hosting negative security actions between members. Fraternal, uh, fraternal solidarity was a fragile, though vital necessity, and not a constant feature. An iconic negative security action was Temujin's murder of his half-brother, Vector. The family's expulsion from their tribe both strained and strengthened family solidarity under extreme duress. Game-kill theft by Vector deprived the younger boys, offering food to Huelen, their mother. At stake was that Vector was older than Temujin, and, al and although not a descendant of Yusuge's, his father's principal wife, he threatened Temujin's primacy within the family. It is also possible that Temujin killed Bector to prevent him from marrying Huelen. This incident of fratricide has several elements manifesting the character of Temujin and has broader implications for human life security. First, the incident was a microcosm of the wars he would fight in later life. He believed in the justice of his action. <clears throat> a stronger party, Bector had stolen what was rightfully his, and nobody, not even his mother, would intervene to fix this injustice. Appealing to the stronger party with reason and compromise <clears throat> had no prospect of success, and only the elimination of Bechter uh, seemed to resolve the conflict. Temujin became judge, jury, and executioner in settling his grievance. Second, his younger brother Kesar, Kesar had been jointly deprived of their catch and was the perfect ally. An alliance of the two against one, accomplished the murder with dispatch. Third, alone in the wilderness, there was no sovereign body to enforce laws or, or customs, and each man-boy had to look out for himself or be deprived of the essentials of life. Fourth, Huelan appealed to prudence and the practicality of preserving family unity in order to seek vengeance against those who had cruelly deserted them. This only stirred the sons to action. Their grievance was immediate, and retribution would be far off. Finally, Bector, as the formal head, and Temujin's act uh, removed him as chief rival. So here, um, the stratum of, stratum of, or stratum of being, the, the stratum of being is, uh, they're in the state of nature. The security platform is the family. The initiator, is Temujin. The predicate is kills. Uh, the object or the target is Bector. The consequent, intended consequence to remove Bector from competition, the unintended consequence, it demonstrated the, the brittleness of family solidarity and that they were not that far from animal existence. There's a, there's a long um, um, elegy by, by Huelan over the death of, of Bector in which he compares this killing with the acts of snakes and birds and animals. Uh, the resources used and required bow and arrow, and also there was a, uh, was a frontal and rear attack by the, by the two brothers. The actual effect on the object was termination of the life of Bector. Uh, the positive or negative effect for the subject, Temujin removed Bector's arrival, and he bound Kassar as ally and co-executioner. However, it aroused a new threat from the Taichik, from their clan, uh, who heard about uh, the, the killing, and they, they would later punish uh, Temujin for his fratricide. 
And finally, positive or negative for the object, uh, completely negative for vector, end of life. So the, the, this template that I've uh, devised uh, can give the, the multi-dimensions of a security, of a particular security action, in this case, the, the murder of, um, of uh, Vector. A second case, a second incident, after this and, and other adventures, Temujin um, goes to, uh, to, uh, to uh, consummate the, um, the betrothal that had been arranged by his father with, with another tribe. And he brings back Berta as his wife. They get installed, they, they raise horses and, and other things. Um, and one, one early morning, Berta is, um, is kidnapped by, by, the, um, by the American. Uh, the background of this, of course, is that, uh, that Temujin's mother was um, Temujin's mother was was kidnapped from the market originally, and so uh, in this security action, the um, uh, there are social obligations which tighten human relations. In Mongol nomadic feudalism, vassals and lords entered a reciprocal relationship. After the market abduction of his wife, Temujin appeals to his lord Togrul for aid in her rescue. Addressing him as father, he appealed to feudalist reciprocity and obligation in a family-like template of political alliance. He recalled the conversation of the pre previous year and confirmed his good faith. Togrul's assistance in wife retrieval was stated in terms of a tribe-uniting project, not merely restoring the, mar the marriage bed. It was also repayment for a valuable gift, um, a uh, a, a sable coat. This was the symbol and price of alliance and obligation. Temujin also um, reminded uh, Togrul of the gift. However, Togrul implied that uniting the Mongol tribes would be his achievement. He's, uh, in in the, the, the secret history, he, he, he speaks. In return for the sable coat, I shall, reunite, I shall unite for you your scattered people. In return for the black sable coat, I shall bring together for you your divided people. In affirmation of a fictive father-son relationship, the family template for intertribal bonding was prominent. Uh, that is, um, Togrul was the blood brother of Temujin's father, uh, or Anda, as, as the word would be. And um, what uh, Temujin did is to invoke this, uh, this blood brotherhood for his uh, uh, into an alliance to retrieve his wife. Altogrel mentions the sable coat six times, admitting that his support had been assured with a valuable object. It showed him to be a man of his word and carrying out an obligation and reliable when it was in his interest. Togrel invited or ordered Temujin to invite Jamaka to join with his thousands. Temujin returned to his camp and dispatched Kassar and Belgatai to Jamaka. Later, Jamaka, uh, who was an early, who was a young blood brother of Temujin, became the uh, chief rival for Mongol power. And it was only with the defeat of Jamaka that um, that um, 
Temujin could be installed as Chinggis Khan above the Mongols. From these, we can extract a cluster of actions <clears throat> summarized as a security action launched from a security action platform. Arrogant Jamaka was an excellent strategist and focused on destruction of his enemies. He estimated that the Merikit enemy has a, or had a weak leadership. He displayed a warrior instinct and a fierce hunger for battle. He saw himself as avenger and destroyer of the Merikit. He said, we shall utterly destroy his people till nothing will be left. And so in this, we have the same, same list of, uh, of uh, uh, standards here. Uh, they're at the second stratum of being, a life community. Uh, the, secure, the security action platform is social obligation. That, that is, there's this, this web of um, bonding and obligation and reciprocity that is part of the life community. That was, that's what held it together. That's what held clans and alliances and tribes and marriages together was this, this mutual obligation. And the initiator of the rescue, of course, is, is Togrel. He ascends to assist Temujin to retake Birta. Um, and so the, uh, the intended consequence, smite the Merikit, restore Birta to Temujin. The unintended consequence, this, this was the battle, this, uh, the uh, destruction of the Merikit was the battle that, that promoted Temujin into being a major player in Mongol politics. Before that, he had been a hoarder, uh, a herder, he had been a, um, a kind of uh, refugee from various tribal pursuits and so forth. So this, this was uh, his entry into manhood and also into leadership of his, uh, of his group. Their resources, uh, these are listed here. The actual effect, well, there was the restoration of Berta, and uh, this affirmed a powerful alliance uh, feeding the will to power of, of Temujin. So here we have... Um, the, the extraction of Berta from captivity. There's a, there's a theme that runs through the, the entire, um, or through most of, of uh, the, uh, uh, the secret history. And that theme is, it begins with um, the kidnapping of Temujin's mother by Temujin's father, uh, Yusuge. Uh, Huelin is kidnapped from the Merkit, and this creates um, a thirst for vengeance, if you will, among the Merkit. And what happens when Berta is, is captured from the marriage bed, uh, or from the, from the gear of uh, Temujin, she's impregnated by a member of the enemy Merkit tribe. And the offspring of, uh, of Berta, Joch, um, is essentially illegitimate. Or he's, he's, when, when the time for succession comes to Genghis Khan, uh, the, the first son is considered to be illegitimate. He is the, the bastard son of uh, Genghis Khan, the, uh, the son of a Merkit uh, tribesman or tribal leader. And so this, this, uh, this whole, uh, these issues become magnified as um, the events become more state involved. So this is the, the second incident and it takes place at the stratum of being of life community. Let's look at the third one. Not as exciting and more administrative, but it is directly relevant to the survivability of Chinggis Khan. 
Genghis Khan would refer to his golden life, that is, he was the, the center of the Mongol state, and that his life had to be protected at all costs. And so um, the, um, the manner in, in which his protection is assured is, uh, is described in uh, excruciating detail in the secret history. There are pages and pages of the, the, um, the duties of his bodyguards, who would do what, when, uh, what, what would be the penalties for non-performance, and so forth. And it's the only kind of administrative law or an example of a, of, a, of a real law that we have in the secret history. But it's, um, it, it's important because it is the, the pattern for preserving the, the, this royal family in the future. That is, we must have reliable people. Loyalty is the supreme virtue that is embedded in, in the Mongol state and in Mongol society. So while the sources of Mongol statecraft um, remain unclear. The secret history offers an example of one precise command, which would have been the model for others. Genghis gave detailed instructions on the duties and dispositions of day guards, stewards, quiver bearers at night and during the day. Punishment was specified for civilians who violated the bodyguard lines. The organization and duties were designed to provide maximum security for Genghis Khan and to, to prevent assassination. Just to give you an example of of the kind of, of wording of, of these instructions, just a little bit. Further, Chinggis Khan issued the following order and proclaimed it to the commanders of the various companies. When the quiver bearers, the day guards, and the stewards take their turn of duty, they shall carry out their day duties, each at his respective post. As the sun sets, they shall retire so as to be replaced by the night guards and going outside, and on and on and on. So you get uh, these precise details, precise uh, prescriptions, which is in contrast to the narrative of, of the rest of the book. So obviously, it was considered as a very important part of, um, of the secret history and of the organization of the encampments. The length and detail of these regulations may have been unique, but the fact that it was prominent and presumably verbatim in the history underlines the thesis of the anthropocentric theory that state sovereignty and coercive institutions were erected for life security. The bodyguard regulations were rational as the best means for his protection. He was the crown of the Mongol gear, holding the roof in place, the strategic component needed for integrity and completion of the structure. The two pillars, the bagana, holding up the roof of the gear, could be likened to the bodyguards and the clans. Transformation of tribal warriors into a unified instrument of the Mongol state was formally accomplished after the Grand Kuril time in 1206. This was the, the, the assembly of all the clans and tribes. Tightening his grip on the army ensured central control of military resources. And the secret history describes it as formation of a bodyguard corps dedicated to protecting the, the Khan. Duties of the guards were detailed and their primary responsibilities uh, consisted of protecting the Khan. This new elite force consisted of appointed officers who were available for other tasks if needed. And in fact, uh, the Khan uh, would promote men from his bodyguard to be generals or to be officers in his army. Um, a mobile army with movable headquarters could not have stone walls and moats, and so warriors of unquestioning loyalty were appointed to his camp for his protection. 
Prior to formal state formation, Genghis employed an informal band of brothers to protect him from assassination and on the battlefield. As Khan, he issued detailed regulations on duties, hours, and deployment of bodyguard, bodyguard corps. He was concerned over his own safety from possibility of poisoning or sneak attack. It implied that Genghis Khan was not merely an organ of the state, but he was the state personified. And, his, and an untimely death would dissipate a painfully uh, constructed unity. As Great Khan, he initiated major reorganization of his army. He had secured this golden life by vanquishing and exterminating enemies, by acquiring allies and warrior disciples, and fathering numerous children with multiple wives, liaisons, and concubines. His creation of the formal bodyguard within the headquarters was a security action possible only within the state. And I've used the same template to outline this, um, these actions. This corps also served as military school for young commanders using fictive family bond and mutual responsibility to enhance military solidarity. It became a new aristocracy and the core of the Mongol state. The bodyguard division of labor provided a prelude to government organization regarding the assignments among guards and chamberlains. In conclusion, uh, I have outlined a theory of human life security having universal ramifications, and I've added illustrations from the secret history. The approach offers a more humanist approach by the existential inversion of normal political discourse. The existential approach asks a single question. How does a single human sustain his life? Philosophical anthropology offers some clues and categories, but stops short of exploring the state and civil society as separate strata of being. The theory, all, the theory approach also establishes an ontological hierarchy consisting of the tangibly real, which is the individual, the consensus, uh, the consensus real person, uh, the person, the legally and conceptually real, the subject, and tentatively, uh, civil society creates the citizen at, at a much um, higher level of, of ontology. Security theory postulates that man's primary motivation is to remain alive, and that he has constructed life communities and states to reinforce his ability to achieve longevity. The life of Genghis Khan compressed a process taking centuries in most other countries. As a result of single generation state formation, a stable civilization, civil society, was not formed. The Mongol conquests affected much of Eurasia, destroying old kingdoms and altering trade routes. The Golden Horde was the umbrella under which the Russian, the Russian state emerged and assimilated some of its features in later Tsardoms. Mongol threats, depredations, occupations, and imitators were major factors in the evolution of major Asian states as they emerged from medieval feudalism into absolutist modernity. Finally, this theory provides a method and a framework upon which scientific analysis of the human condition can be pursued. It postulates a unit for measuring life security, the human life year, and examines the quantity of these units to discover the inputs and outputs directly affecting that aggregate quantity. The length of every human life is mostly influenced by the number, timeliness, and quality of its security context. The individual responses to threat and opportunity are a combination of action and knowledge. 
Biographies of famous persons provide a rich trove of life security data, while subjective know thyself introspection can even be more revealing. Without life security, there can be no life or liberty or pursuit of happiness. Uh, just let me end with a couple of slides here. These are the Mongol conquests during the life of Chinggis Khan. You can see how, you can see where the, uh, the Mongols originated up in this uh, periphery of the periphery beyond the Great Wall in this corner of uh, uh, present day Mongolia. And um, at the time, uh, in, in the later years of, of uh, the Khan's life, they expanded into all these directions, uh, taking over the Jin, the, the, uh, the Tangut, uh, going into Central Asia, current, uh, contemporary Uzbekistan, and patrols or um, raiding parties were sent into the, the, the Caucasus, um, and later conquests included uh, all of Russia and uh, parts of Eastern Europe. After his death, the, the, the heirs of Genghis Khan expanded even further into contemporary Iran, Iraq, um, Arabia, stopping at the Himalayas. The, the, uh, the Mongols did not penetrate into the subcontinent um, for one reason. The, uh, the climate was not um, very conducive to the, the health of their horses. And the, the same thing happened when they expanded into Europe that uh, Europe was seen as poor uh, compared to China and, and these other kingdoms that, um, that they, they uh, conquered in, uh, in Eurasia. And um, so they, they stopped in Eastern Europe. Um, there's a battle in Silesia where the, the, uh, the cream of uh, Eastern European knighthood was, was slaughtered. They, they probably could have gone further into Europe um, uh, perhaps um, destroying Christianity and the chances of Renaissance and Enlightenment, for, uh, or at least postponing it. Um, but the uh, the Khan, a later Khan, had died, and and so the the, uh, the generals gave up on their attack in Europe and went back to Mongolia. Very fortuitous. In the meantime, Kublai Khan had conquered China, and um, the Koreans were also subdued by the. Uh, by the Mongols. So it was an extensive, it was a world empire. Uh, Weatherford and others have described the empire as Pax uh, Mongolica, that is, the, um, the Silk Road was, uh, was reopened and um, uh, messengers were, were uh, able to, to cross the empire in, uh, in a couple of weeks. So communications. Also, there was there was the, uh, the diffusion of um, Asian medicine, science, mathematics into Europe. It was Western Europe that really reaped the benefits of um, of the the Mongol conquest and the Mongol peace that followed. It was also the inspiration for Marco Polo, and um, Christopher Columbus uh, carried several. Um, several volumes of uh, versions of uh, Marco Polo's travels so, so that he would recognize the, uh, the realm of Kublai Khan when he arrived there. So there was a great um, innovation, a great uh, enlightenment, and dis uh, an intellectual discovery of Asia, in part because of the, uh, the conquests of, uh, of Genghis Khan.
again, uh, where is this going? Well, some of the concepts I'm applying to a study of Korea as well, and two concepts I use are life security and sovereignty. Um, starting from 700,000 BC, where there was no state, and then the creation of the Puyo state. And I'm going to carry this all the way up to a uh, contemporary period where uh, you have complete and total sovereignty under uh, the Democratic People's Republic of, of Korea, i.e., North Korea, where there was total sovereignty and um, uh, they're, they're, they're almost a perfect 10 in terms of, of sovereignty. Not so good not so hot in, uh, in life security. Okay, um, I'm gonna stop right here, and if there's any questions or comments or criticism, I'd be welcome to uh, entertain them. Great, well thank you so much for the talk, it was quite rich and interesting. Um, we have about 30 minutes for questions and discussion, so we'll have questions. Entertain them now. I have a couple to start us off. Okay. Um, one thing I'm interested in is the role of technological innovation and infrastructure in maintaining life security. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that shows up much at all in the secret history or how technology played a role in maintaining life security for people, um, both in terms of warfare but also in terms of um, just basic necessities, caring for oneself and one's others. Um, housing, sure, sure. agriculture, all those things. Uh, second question is, um, how much can we extrapolate from the life of Genghis Khan, who's a quite exceptional figure, in that he's the sovereign of the state, and think in terms of the state as a whole? Mm -hmm. like, what is it, does life security improve for everyone, or is it mostly the people that have the most access or the ability to exert their will to power? Um, what happens, like someone who's fighting on the front lines for Genghis Khan, maybe his life security goes down as a result of the state formation. Right, right. Uh, first question, great questions. Um, the secret history is um, rather silent on the material conditions, or the, uh, it was, these were given. That is, the, um, the Mongols prevailed in large part because of their fantastic bowmanship their, their, uh, their bows their bows and arrows could shoot um, well beyond those of, of other uh, nomads and they would they were able to stand off um, and they could they could shoot their arrows and, and they could decimate again and again the uh, the opposing army so archery was was one technological um, advantage that they had a second one was horsemanship their horses were bred on, um, uh, on the, the Mongolian steppes. They were short horses. They, could, they would eat almost anything. They would, uh, if there was snow, they would dig in the snow and they would, they would find their nutrition. This gave them fantastic mobility so that they could move uh, very quickly. Also, the, the endurance of the Mongol tribesmen. They were used to hardship. They were used to... to uh, traveling for days on horse, sleeping on, on their horses if, if necessary, um, taking raw meat, putting it under the saddle, and tenderizing it so they could eat it on, on, on the way. Uh, or if there was no food, they would slit the throat um, and suck the blood out of the, their horse and keep on going that way. Each, each warrior had um, five to 10 to a dozen horse, backup horses so they, 
they could they could um, rotate um, use that way. So their technology was extremely simple. Their um, and as far as uh, they, they needed no supply train, as most armies do. They did not need uh, weapons. They did not, because um, very often the, 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 the arrows that the Mongols used would only fit on their bows. And so they would shoot their arrows and, and the, the enemy could not shoot them back. On the other hand, the enemy could shoot their arrows and the Mongols would pick them up and they could shoot them back because of the, the uh, design of the, the bowstrings, I think. So there were a number of advantages, very simple um, tactics, but they, they were able to win practically all battles, except when they confronted the Mamluks in, in Egypt, uh, the Javanese kings, and um, the Japanese typhoons. But they were, uh, they were victorious practically every place. So technology, the, the short answer is technology, uh, as we know it, did not uh, play a major part. Adaptation was was more important, I think. Um, on life security and who gets to live, who gets to die, the warriors, um, you know, if, if they just stayed as simple sheep herders or horse herders in, in the steppe, that was a kind of high-risk environment, too. The weather was, was very often bad. Um, they, there was always predation. People were stealing their horses or, or stealing their flocks. So that was high risk, and very often, Women would be carried away if they were not protected by the men. Um, children would be carried off for slavery. And it's possible that, uh, it's probable that Jamaka and Temujin also served uh, a number of years as slaves to, to other tribes. So that was pretty rampant. And, and um, at least by being a warrior, even if you're on the front lines, you, um, if you showed merit, uh, you would be rewarded. And so the, the risk there was, was uh, at least as great as just being a, sim a, a simple nomad. The, um, plus the fact that there, there was this um, family solidarity that a warrior uh, wanted, um, they desired a family. And the family was extremely loyal, so that if, if a warrior was killed in battle, uh, Genghis and his successors made sure that the warrior's family were well taken care of. So there was a kind of um, uh, a supplement to, to, for veterans, widows, and, and children. So the, um, as, as far as um, the, the, uh, those who were higher up, the officers and, and Genghis and the Khans themselves, uh, yes, they had bodyguards. But they were seen as more valuable, um, particularly if you carried the blood of Genghis Khan. It was all the back almost to the 1920s. There was a Khan in Bukhara who was a descendant of Genghis Khan. And that was his claim to legitimacy, to, to, to authority, that he had the Genghis blood. You had um, many uh, uh, Tatars who uh, surrendered in, after, the, after Ivan IV had, had captured Kazan uh, in 1552. And they joined the uh, they joined the Russian army as it was coming about, and and there was the, this mix of um, of um, of Mongol blood with Russian blood. I, I took the Trans-Siberian Railroad across uh, Russia a couple of years ago, and um, our guide I got in conversation. I said, "Well, what is your ancestry?" She says, "French, German, Tatar, Mongol, Russian, Latvian." Um, 
there, there was this mixing of, of, uh, of blood. Um, and um, the, the, uh, the, the uh, leadership, of course, had um, access to, to the best first choice of women, first choice of loot, and, and, and other things. And they also had, as I mentioned, they, they, they had their, their bodyguards. So there was an uneven uh, protection of life in, in the army, in the government, in, in, the, uh, in the hierarchy of society. But, there, but the rewards were, were enough that, um, they're, they're, uh, that it, it, they maintained their solidarity for a number of decades. And, but eventually, of course, it, it all dissolved. Any questions? Comments? Sure. sure. Um, it's another Pax Times, Times of Peace in other nations. There was a burgeoning of art mm -hmm. Japan, Europe. I'm not sure if that happened in, in the Pax Times. And the second, uh, Pax Mongolica. The second, um, you mentioned the lost chapter that you said had to do with women. Mm -hmm. How do we know it's lost? And what chapter was it? And what else can you tell us about that chapter? Well, it was mentioned by, first of all, it was mentioned by Jack Weatherford in his book, and also in the volume uh, of the translation of the secret history, it's indicated that it's missing, that somebody had just, that it's never been found. Maybe it exists someplace, but it hasn't been, been found yet. Specifically about Mongol women. About Mongol women. They were, they were um, very important, actually, in the life of, of Chinggis Khan. Um, it was his mother and his wife who advised him to break with Jamaka, for example, uh, and, and he followed that advice. It was um, his mother, who was uh, Genghis Khan's mother, who, um, who would uh, criticize and um, verbally chastise her sons when they argued that they have to hold together. You know, one arrow can break, but a dozen arrows will, will be strong. So solidarity was, was um, the theme of um, holding together. Um, there, there was, um, he, he had secondary wives. There were two Tatar women that he, he took, and they were uh, really good advisors. One of them reminded Genghis that, well, you're getting old, and it's time to, isn't it time to choose a successor? And so it was at, at her instance that he sat the sons down together. They had a big, big argument. The first and second son argued. They were going at each other. And finally, uh, they decided on the third son um, to be the Urgaday, uh, to, to be the, the successor to, to Chinggis Khan. But Joch and uh, Chagatai were, were set aside. And they, they agreed that um, they would always disagree. So. They uh, they gave up on that, but that was but that was instituted uh, instigated by the um, by um, the secondary wife. There was another and um, in this book about um, the um, Mongol queens, there were some um, pretty fierce women. There was one who was a daughter of a Khan, and uh, she said she would marry any man who could beat her in wrestling. Nobody could do it, but and and so. Um, Today, I was. Uh, if you go to Mongolia today and you see um, wrestling, men wear these these little vests, and what they'll do, they'll walk around and they'll they'll they'll, they'll bare their chest, and this goes back to the the woman uh, queen 
who was a champion wrestler, so that these men wrestlers are showing, well, we're males, we're not women. We're, we have no connection with these female wrestlers. And, and so uh, this, this tradition still carries on. But um, women were participants in um, most of the activities. They, they would follow the men in war. They would, they would provide um, housekeeping. Uh, they would keep animals and, and so forth. They, they gave a lot of good advice to, to the men. So they were very much a part of, um, of the Mongol project. As far as the other question about um, art and, and flourishing, um, Mongols became very, uh, became very wealthy as a result of the pillage that they undertook against various countries and, and empires. And um, there, uh, there emerged a kind of um, interlocking directorate where uh, one Khan would, would specialize in raising horses, for example, another Khan in uh, control of China, would, would control the silk trade. And the Silk Road would, would essentially carry these goods back and forth, uh, reaching all, all parts of, of the empire. As far as art was concerned, Mongol art was concerned mostly with, uh, they, were, they were converted to Buddhism, and so tantric Buddhism, and uh, today there are still um, surviving pieces. Uh, but um, it never, never achieved the, uh, the, the heights or the, um, the glory of, of a Japanese or Chinese painting, so forth. Yeah. Okay. But the, um, was the Mongol success in, uh, in China, was it, um, because China was so large, was it simply, do you think it was largely military prowess, as you were uh, probably discussing and implying? The, the Mongol conquests all over the world, but with uh, China today, did they partly um, surrender or, or allow allow uh, the Mongols to win, partly to uh, allow um, to, to ex they could allow a, a weaker foe to defeat a much much larger country to sort of expand culturally, politically, and militarily. It took a long time to conquer China, and. Um, Kublai Khan was, was the beneficiary of, of the conquest, although he wasn't in charge until much later. The, um, the difficulty was, first of all, uh, was the southern, the southern Song that was um, the, the dynasty at the time. And um, northern China had been taken over by the, by the Jin. Uh, that was uh, polished off by, by Genghis Khan. Uh, crossing the Yangtze River, uh, the frontier, and, and some of the other large rivers in, in central China was a problem for the Mongols because their, their solution to river crossing in other parts of Asia uh, was to wait until winter and then they froze and then they could just ride across. But they, they couldn't do that in China, of course, the Han River, the, the Yangtze River, and so forth. And um, so it, it took uh, over a dozen years to conquer the southern Song. Um, the, uh, the Song had also become rather decadent. They had neglected their military preparation. But they still had very strong walled cities. And these cities were, were very different from the, um, from the oases and um, the, uh, the mud walled cities of, of much of Central Asia. Um, and, the, and the Chinese had been, uh, you know, they literally wrote the book on warfare with, with Sunzi, uh, Sunzi Bingfa. Uh, and so they were a very formidable enemy. 
It took, it took a long time to, uh, to actually incorporate China into the Mongol Empire. When it did, when the Mongols did, of course, um, Kublai Khan formed the, uh, he took on a Chinese name. He took on, um, formed the, the Yuan Dynasty, which lasted uh, a, few, a few decades. But the, uh, his dynasty became very Chinese. And, and um, although he spoke, he learned a little bit of Chinese, but his sons were, were, were um, tutored in Confucian thought. They, they, were, they became masters of, of Chinese prose and so forth. And then they, they assimilated with the Chinese. And so yes, the Mongols militarily conquered China, but um, the Chinese assimilated the, the Khans. The same thing happened in uh, Persia that um, after the conquest of, of the uh, Khwarezm Empire and um, the, the southern part of, of Persia, the, uh, the subsequent Khans converted to Islam and gradually became part of, of uh, that. The only a major exception, of course, was the, 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 the Khans, uh, the Golden Horde, as it was called, ruling over Russia. Um, the, uh, the, the Mongols ruled about 250 years in Russia. There was, uh, they had uh, destroyed the Kivan state, which um, was Christian, was located in uh, present-day Ukraine. The cities were destroyed by the Mongols. And um, Moscow emerged as the, the major power under the Tatars. They, uh, Ivan III was, um, was very uh, astute in making loans to, to other principalities, gradually accrued power. And um, under uh, his, his descendant, Ivan IV, or Ivan the Ter Terrible, the, uh, the Russians um, flourished. They, uh, they attacked the remnants of the Tatars in, uh, in um, Astrakhan and Kazan, absorbed these territories, Christianized them, absorbed or killed off uh, the opposing armies. There was, there was still the Crimean Tartars who attacked um, uh, the, the Moscow forces. But from Ivan IV, one finds the, the, uh, the Russians taking over much of Mongolian, or much of uh, the Mongols' conquest in Central Asia. From that time forward, there's kind of reversal of the uh, the Mongol conquests under under the uh, the Russians, and so forth. The um, yeah uh, the infl but uh, there was a great deal of influence of the Mongols over the Chinese during their during the uh, Yuan Dynasty. The Mongols um, had policies that were more friendly to the masses. They they instituted uh, more. More um, practical education, um, the uh, operas, plays, um, literature flourished under the Mongols by releasing the the populations from the old aristocracy. It was a, it was a partly meritocracy, but it was also a meritocracy of, of but it was also an aristocracy of birth, and the Mongols kind of liberated. China from that, and you find a different kind of, of culture emerging during the during the Yuan Dynasty and subsequent Ming and, and uh, Qing Dynasty. So there was a, you know, the the paradox of the Mongol conquests is that it was both a liberation and destruction. 
the Mongols themselves were not creators of, of anything much, but they liberated um, much of what happened in, in, in Central Asia, China. Even in Korea, one finds that um, a new culture emerged, uh, a new non-aristocratic culture emerges uh, after the, uh, the Mongol uh, conquest. So they, 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 it was a kind of revolution. It was, uh, it was, a, it was a revolutionary um, liberation in one sense, uh, very uh, destructive, but, um, but also uh, even, even, even Japan, which was not conquered by the Mongols. They, the Mongols um, built fleets using Korean labor, Chinese labor, bankrupted Korea, and um, two fleets that were sent over to conquer Japan were destroyed in large part by, um, partly by the samurai who, when, when they landed in Fukuoka and, and Hara, Hara Bay, but also by typhoons, or the Jap as the Japanese called them, the, the kamikaze, the, uh, the sacred winds, which uh, destroyed the, the Mongol fleets. Um, was, um, yeah, so those are, a lot happened during, during that period. And there's two school, let me get, just drift off a little bit here. Um, there's, in, in Russian historiography, there's, there's two schools of thought. One is the Eurasian school that, uh, and, and this is uh, George Vernadsky, largely, that uh, the Mongols were instrumental in cutting Russia off from Western Europe. And therefore, a unique Russian identity emerged out of this, this Mongol conquest, that there was the Asian, Asianization of Russia that, that continues. That um, the other school of thought is uh, Ryasnovsky, um, another historian who considers uh, sort of the, the Mongols to be kind of a speed bump. That uh, yeah, they, they did a lot of destruction, but there was there was no permanent damage or no no permanent effect. And so you have these two schools of thought on where Russia is today. Uh, Pushkin wrote that um, the Russians were were were. Uh, Unfortunate because they were conquered by the Mongols, who left them neither algebra nor any other science. Um, you know, so so uh, this this debate is still going on in in Russia today. Anything else? I have one last question. Okay. Um, the estimate of going back to Chinggis Khan and the, and thinking about the secret history and his life actually. You, you estimate that kind of the baseline of risk in his life was around 40%, um, and then it, it went up and down depending right. on his biography, what was happening around him. I'm wondering how you, how do you come up with these estimates? How do you figure out that 40% is sort of the baseline, um, and then sometimes it goes up to 70%, and all, all these sorts of things? It's very, very subjective, very uh -huh. subjective. What, um, what I was trying to get at is, is that there is this, this oscillation that, uh, there are good years and bad years. There are dangerous years and not so dangerous years. And if you go through the, if you go through the secret history, um, each of those lines represents the greatest security threat in that year. It's it's not an average. It's not um, some kind of mean or anything. But it's the greatest threat is is the, the most dangerous one, and that's the one that's posted. So, if, um, if you want more background on, on on all this stuff, it's it's at this website. This. Uh, part of the, the recast uh, website. Thank you all very much. Thank you so much.